Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I will declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. For just a moment, consider with me this question. What is the relationship that you have, you personally have, with God's word? What role does the Bible, what role does God's word play in your life. Now, some options here. You might say that God's Word, the Bible, is life-defining, meaning that every decision you make, from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, the big decisions of like career and marriage and, and, and financial, even down to the smallest things, are defined by, controlled by, led by the Word of God. Option two. There's probably more than the three I'm going to give you, but option two. The Bible is a passing interest. Now, if it's a passing interest for you, you likely own a Bible, maybe own multiple. And there have been moments in your life when you've read it and you are interested in what it says. And so you, and you're here at church this morning. And so I would imagine at least in this room, no matter where you are, that at least you have a passing interest. You're interested in the Bible. You're, you're open to people teaching the Bible. But but in all honesty, you cannot say that the, that the teaching of the Bible are, are determinative of your life. And so you know there are some areas in your life that the Bible teaches one way, you do it differently. Or you go for seasons, weeks, months, multiple months, where you don't pay attention to what the Bible says at all. No active Bible study in your life, no active Bible reading in your life. It's around you as a passing interest, but it's not determinative of your life. And then, of course, there are some of you here this morning that have no relationship to it at all. Now, you live in South Georgia, so that doesn't mean that you don't have any connection to it. It just means you don't have any relationship to it. So when you make big decisions, your first question is not, what does the Bible say? When you're confronted with issues of morality and sin, what determines your answer or response to that is not the teachings of Scripture you're, you're, you're not concerned by long seasons of your life of having no connection to the Bible at all. And it may be that you've not studied it, read it, or have much knowledge about it at all. Now, wherever you fall on that, um, that spectrum, I, I want to make the case this morning that whether you admit it or not, theology matters, and theology, the questions of theology and what the Bible says are, are important to your life. Now, theological debates and and how you interpret the Word of God have always been around and, and often have been the, the subject of great passionate debate. Throughout history, those who participated in theological debates have often been guilty of allowing their passion for arguing for what is true and right to give way to personal attacks and unkind words of their opponents. 
you're looking for just an interesting way to pass a minute or 10 or an hour, there's a website out there called Lutheran Insulter. And it's exactly what it sounds like. If you click the button on the Lutheran Insulter, it pulls up from the writings of Martin Luther some of his more colorful insults. There's only one button on the site. You push it again, it brings up another insult. Now, now Luther was writing in his day passionately for the defense of his understanding of of Scripture, but but often in his passion for writing for Scripture, he would give himself over to some pretty nasty um, and mean-spirited insults. Now, some of them are so scatologically um, um, inappropriate that I can't speak them here. But some of the more appropriate ones that I thought were age and um, uh, appropriate for the context, just to give you a sort of a feel for what, how Luther wrote, um, I pulled some. So one says, I had not supposed, supposed or expected your arrogant spirit to seek such a ridiculous and childish reason for lying. You should have never, you, you should have better reason. Later, he, in another place he wrote for, we should uh, roundly denounce you, the devil's messengers, as radicals, villains, poisonous, evil worms. Or even if you are good friends of ours, we should denounce you as mad fools and stupid persons. Or he wrote, you're a gross, ungrateful clod, worthy of being numbered amongst the beast. That's a nice word to say, isn't it? Now, Luther was unexcusably given sometimes to personal attacks. But um, what defined Luther was a passion for the Word of God and defending the faithful understanding of Scripture and the understanding of God's Word to the world around him. Luther lived in a world that was defined by theology. Now, we live in a very drastically different cultural context, but I want to make the case that we still live in a world that is defined by theology. Whatever you hold as true will define how you see the world, and whatever you believe has the power to save will have your heart's affection. So friends, I believe, it is my conviction that the Word of God is the power to save. This is the testimony of God's salvation to us. And in the words, in the teachings, in the law, in the precepts of God's Word is salvation, not just for a good and happy life now, but for eternity. That determines how I live, it determines what I give my life to, and it determines what has my heart's affection. I mentioned to you that Psalm 119 is the longest of the Psalms. It's 176 verses, 22 stanzas. But common throughout the Psalm is a focus on God's Word. Here's some of the themes throughout the Psalm. There's a a theme of, of asking God, teach me your law. Often he talks about delighting in the law. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, He talks about meditating or fixing his eyes on the Word or the law of God. He talks about safety, rescue, or even exoneration coming from the law of God. Now, friends, if you are a believer here this morning, so you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you confess Jesus as your Lord, then what you're saying is, I'm going to devote my life to obeying the commands of God. Where do we find the commands of God? Commands of God are testified to in the Word of God. 
So if you're a believer today, you began your walk with the Lord with a declaration of saying, I'm going to obey the commands of Jesus that we find in God's Word. I want to be very clear this morning. My purpose is not to teach you techniques on how to study God's, the Bible or to berate you for not studying it enough. Because, to be totally honest, I, I think I, I might could guilt you into giving more attention to the Word of God, but that only lasts as long as I apply the guilt, and so it's not permanent. And, and I could teach you some techniques to study the Bible more effectively, and I, by the way, I'm glad to do that, but even still, I, I think if there's not a, a deeper element here, even that won't be effective. I want to make the case this morning that your devotion to the word that your that your devotion to the word of God does not begin with determination. It begins with delight. If you're determined to study God's word this morning, you may leave here thinking, I'm going to do better, I'm going to be better, I'm going to try harder. But my experience has been that's not enough to keep you in the word of God over the long haul. But if you leave here today with an understanding of the joy, with the delight, with the pleasure, with the goodness that comes from the Word of God, that'll not only keep you coming again and again and again, but it'll give you a greater and greater desire for more and more and more. So here's the three points this morning I want to make for you. Number one, we begin, these are, these are foundational, built on one another. We begin with hope in God's Word. If your hope is in God's Word, that determines everything else that follows. Number two, that we are to love God's Word. That, 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 that desire, that pleasure, that delight, that we are to love God's Word because of its hope in our lives. And then lastly, we are to be transformed by God's Word. That happens when we love God's Word. That happens because we have put our hope in God's Word. So let's begin with that very foundational concept, hoping in God's Word. Now, I would just direct your attention to the first few verses that we read this morning, verses 9, 10, and 11. The psalmist begins with a question. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can you walk righteously before God is the question that he's asking. And he answers it by, by saying, by guarding your life, by guarding, uh, uh, by guarding it according to your word. And then he says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I very much want to make the case this morning for the importance of Bible study. I want you to study God's Word. I want you to be a part of faithfully a Sunday school class here at church that is studying God's Word. I want you to be a regular, faithful attender of worship as the Word of God has preached. Now, don't hear me wrong. That is very much my desire for you. And I hope as you leave here this morning, you leave here with a new commitment to make the Bible a defining element of your life. But I would imagine that most of you guessed that was true of me already. What Baptist preacher doesn't want you in Sunday school? Amen? What Baptist preacher or any preacher doesn't want you in worship faithfully and regularly? That's, I, would, I would imagine you would already have assumed that about me. 
These things are true, but I also know that making the case for more attention to the Bible is pointless unless you understand the fundamental reason for why I and so many throughout history had devoted our lives to and built our lives on the Bible. I was in a conversation not too long ago, and the person I was talking with, I don't know if they meant to be offensive, they were, but they tried to, they tried to dismiss my obedience to God's Word as not something that was convictional, but as something that was external. They said, well, you're just doing that because you're a preacher. You have to do that. You have to say the Bible is true. You have to obey the Bible. You have to go to church on Sunday and those sort of things because you're a preacher. So what they're saying is my job determined my choices. I couldn't let it go. I said, oh, oh no, let's, let's get this right. I am convinced that the Word of God is true. And long before I was a preacher, and long before I had the title of pastor, I had devoted my life to the Word of God, and that determined all the choices of my life. I obey the Lord today because I believe the Word of God is true. If I don't have a church to pastor, and I don't, I'm not a, a preacher anywhere, then because of my conviction, I'm still obeying the Word of God. That flows out of conviction, not out of some career advancement. The reason why I make the choices in my life is because I have put my hope in the Word of God. So we mentioned in the first three verses of our passage, we, we see that the hope of the psalmist is built on God's Word. Hope that righteousness is revealed in God's Word. How can a young man keep his way pure? Well, the answer is by giving his life to the Word of God, pursuing the Word of God. Hope that God's Word will lead to keeping oneself right in a right relationship with God. There's a hope built into that, that your way can be pure before the living God by obeying the Word of God. The psalmist believes that the Word of God to be true, thus he has placed the hope of his life and his eternity in God's Word. Do you believe the Bible to be true? Now, I hope the reflective answer, the reflexive answer to that is, yes, of course I do. But you understand that the testimony of whether or not you believe the Bible to be true is not necessarily what you say, it is what you do. More than any other question, your answer to this question will determine your relationship with the Bible. Do you believe it to be true? If you see the Bible as beautiful poetry or interesting history, you may study it but you will not live by it or obey it. If you see it as wise teaching and helpful advice, you may incorporate some of the Bible's teachings uh, into your life, but you will pick and choose the ones that you like and reject the ones that you don't. If you believe the Bible to be true, then your hope is founded on the testimony, on the teachings, and on the promises of Scripture. You see, what you hope for is founded on what you believe to be true. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Friends, when you come to believe the Bible to be true, you will put your whole life's hope on and in the Word of God. You see, truth brings healing and salvation. I believe the Bible to be true. 
Thus, I believe the Bible alone brings about healing and salvation. Believing something to be true gives confidence that it will bring healing and salvation. These first three verses of our passage recognizes that healing and salvation are found in obedience to the Word of God. Verses 10 and 11 are the response to this conviction, to seek the Word of God, to store up the Word of God, to ask God to keep from wandering from His Word. The psalmist is recognizing that obedience to God's Word is not a static thing. It's not a once and done thing, but it's a continual thing. Oh God, keep me faithful to your word because in your word because it is true is the source of healing and salvation healing and salvation are found in the continual keeping of God's word when God's words are comforting when God's words are encouraging when God's word are challenging and even when God's words are hurtful I believe they are true and that truth brings about healing and salvation we're we're living in a cultural context where evangelicals particularly are, are very happy to receive the sweet things of Scripture, but we don't want to hear the hard things of Scripture. If you believe it to be true, then you receive it all as leading to healing and salvation. I mean, if you know, I broke my wrist a, few, uh, a month or two ago, and I've just recently started uh, physical therapy. And when I started physical therapy, I, I, I told my physical therapist, Philip, I said, now I'm really interested in getting my motion back as much as I can. So you do whatever you got to do to, 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 to bring healing to my hand. And he said to me, that's going to be very unpleasant. I said, that's okay. I can handle it. He said, we'll see. He was not lying. It is awful. I've not broken out into tears yet, but they were moments of temptation. Why would I pay somebody, willfully go regularly, to allow them to cause me all kinds of horrible pain? I don't do it because it's fun. I don't do it because it's pleasurable. I do it because I believe the truth that that will bring healing. And so in his expertise and his knowledge in the truth of that, I'm willing to let the pain come because I believe that it's going to bring about healing and restoration to my wrist. It's the same with the Word of God. Oh, we like the good, sweet promises, don't we? But what about when the Word of God speaks a hard word to you? It's the question then, do you believe it's true? Because if you believe it's true, then you obey it because you understand that that truth brings about healing, restoration, and salvation. Hope in God's Word. And when you hope in God's Word, that produces something, and I'm going to just call it loving God's Word. Look in verse 12 with me. Now, verse 12 is... The best way I know how to describe this is, is almost like a, a praise reaction. Blessed, he says, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. In other words, you are good, God. Praise God. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth and the ways of your testimonies. I delight. That's a key word here. I delight as much as in all riches. Love God's Word. Do you love God's Word? Now, you will not love God's Word unless you put your hope in God's Word. But if you put your hope in God's Word, it will produce in you a love for God's Word. And when you love something, loving something finds pleasure in knowing what you love. 
Our relationship with God's Word is more than transactional or academic. The, the, the words of the psalmist testify to a deeper relationship than, the, than, than just some academic study. So in verse 12, the psalmist rejoices and praises God for his law. Oh, bless the Lord, he says. In verse 13, the psalmist says he cannot keep silent but will declare God's law. In other words, it's flowing out of him as a joyful declaration. In verse 13, the psalmist declares, uh, in, the next, in verse 14, excuse me, the psalmist declares that his delight is in the law of God more than any other thing of this world, more than the riches of the world. I delight in the word of God. Now, before you can delight in the Word of God, you must first come to the conviction that it is true and brings healing and salvation. But when you come to that conviction of truth of God, then you will also come to delight, to love, to find pleasure in knowing the Word of God. Now these words, delight and pleasure, I think are interchangeable here. Find your pleasure, find your delight in the Word of God. Isn't that a different understanding than how many of us approach God's Word? Many of us approach God's Word as an obligation. In fact, I suspect even as I've been preaching this morning, some of you have responded that way. Well, I know I ought to read the Bible more often. That's obligation language. Check it off as you've done something. Some of us approach God's Word as a boring exercise. You don't want to, you have to, so let's just get it over with. Others of us respond to God's Word as a required course. Well, I guess I need to go to Sunday school so I can learn something more about God. Or even write it off as an academic study only for the professionals. It might be maybe interesting. It may provide some academic achievements or accolades. But friends, academic study alone does not produce desire. It doesn't produce a love for God's Word. The psalmist does not see God's Word in this way. The psalmist sees God's Word as the source and the object of his delight. Delight produces desire. When we, we naturally seek out what we delight in, we naturally give attention to what we delight in, we naturally invest our time and energy in what we delight in. Oh, friends, do you remember those early days when you were dating the one that you would eventually marry? Did, did anybody force you to spend time with them? Did anybody demand that you learn their habits and their preferences? Did anybody say, listen, you must spend this required amount of time with them? No, because they had captured your heart's delight. You desired to spend time with them, and you took pleasure in spending time with them. And knowing them was something that thrilled your heart. When you love God's Word, you'll delight in God's Word and desire more and more and more of it. In fact, I would say love delights in knowing more. Those who delight in the Word of God never, ever, ever grow tired of God's Word. Whatever you delight in, you rejoice in knowing more of. If you don't understand this principle, then you might wonder, Somebody who's reached advanced age and been in the church a long time. So let's just say 95, 96-year-old. Been in the church their whole life, listened to countless sermons and countless Bible studies. You might ask yourself, what in the world are they still here for? What is there still to learn? What is there still to know? Have they not already heard it all the, already, already? And, 
if you're just looking from the outside in, I get that explanation or that question, but you need to understand when you love something, when you delight in something, you never grow tired of knowing more of it. The language we use to talk about our relationship with God's Word may be misunderstood by those who don't delight in God's Word. We often use language like education and academic language to talk about um, the Bible. So we talk about we're going to have a Bible study. We're going to go to Sunday school. We're going to have Bible lessons. As a kid who did not like school growing up, I struggled. In the summer, my mom wanted me to go to vacation Bible School. I was okay with the first two words. It was the last one I could not stand. We often use academic language to talk about the Bible. Now, this language is not inappropriate, for we do intend to study, and we do intend to learn. But our motivation for these lessons, these classes, these schools, is not pure academics. And one of the ways we testify to this is you don't ever check off the fact that you've attained a degree or some level of training. So you might ask, how long do I have to go to Sunday school before I graduate? Graduation is when God calls you home. Somebody say amen. How many, how many vacation Bible schools do I need to go to before I know it all and I can say I've finished? Now, you go to a course of study at a college university, that's absolutely the, the right idea to think about. Here's the courses, here's the requirements. When you do that, you are finished. You get the degree. You don't have to continue studying that, that, that particular stuff because we're assuming you know it now. That's academics. The study of God's Word is delight. We delight. We love God's Word. And so loving God's Word, that delight produces in us a desire to know more and more and more because we want to know more and more and more of the righteousness of God. A Christian delights in the Word and naturally desires to know more of God in His Word. We study and we learn not out of a legalism or obligation, but out of a delightful joy of knowing more of God's Word and His truth. Listen to me. If you don't get anything else this morning, get that. That our relationship with God's Word cannot be external. It cannot be academic. It cannot be simply sterile. It must be a desire, a delight, a love. If you love God's Word, there's nothing I can say or do to keep you from God's Word. But if you don't love God's Word, you will soon grow bored of it. When you hope, when you put your hope in God's Word, it produces a love for God's Word. And when you love God's Word, what happens to you is you become transformed by God's Word. Look in verse 15. The psalmist writes, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. Pleasure, delight, again. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Two things here, thinking about being transformed by God's Word. Number one, let the Word of God consume your thoughts. We talked last week about thinking right. This very well connects with that. So what consumes your thoughts right now? I preached last week from Philippians 4, 8, and 9, and I made this statement. I said, the presence of, of the God of peace is known 
when you turn your attention away from the things of this world and turn to the Lord. So when we give our thoughts to the things of God and the character of God and the presence of God, that's when we know and we experience when we recognize the God of peace. In verse 15, the psalmist declares two things. He says, I will meditate on God's precepts and I will fix my eyes on the way of God. Being transformed by God's word is not a goal to be achieved, but a byproduct. Listen to me carefully. But a byproduct of believing God's word to be true and delighting in God's word. When you love and delight in God's word, the desire of verse 15 is the most natural outcome. So when he says, I will meditate on your precepts, in other words, I will think on them continually, that's not something he's saying, okay, I'm going to do that external of everything else. No, he says, because I put my hope in God and because I delight in God's word, the most natural outcome of that is all day long and in everything I do, I'm thinking about, I'm meditating on the word of God. What consumes your thoughts will be where what your heart most delights in. The psalmist says in verse 14 that he delights in God's word more than all the riches of the world. Friends, we, ought to let the, we must let the word of God consume our thoughts. In other words, in every situation, ask, what does the Bible say about this? What is God's heart on this? In every life decision, ask, how can I be most faithful to the word of God in this? Let the word of God consume your thoughts in every area of your life, and let the word of God transform your worldview. Now, worldview is a word that's grown in usage in recent years. I don't remember it ever being used when I was growing up, and then it seems like these days it's everywhere. And I think the reason for that is the world that I grew up in had a common worldview, so we didn't have to identify it very often. But today, friends, we're living with, we're working beside, uh, we're related to people who have a vastly different worldviews. And so we're talking about it a lot now because... So worldview is the lens through which you see the world. It's the lens through which you understand history, you understand the present reality, and you understand what is to come. Having a biblical worldview is to see the world, present, past, and future, through the testimony of Scripture. So just brief highlights here. The Bible teaches us that This world wasn't created by happenstance. It wasn't created by random order, but this world was created by the will and the purpose and the declaration of God. That's a biblical worldview. You're not here by accident. You were formed and made by the living God with purpose, on purpose. God knows who you are because he knew you before your mother knew you. That's a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says that, the Bible teaches that God created all things, and they were good and perfect, but man sinned against God, and with that sin brought about the curse of sin, which has created all, brought about all of the brokenness that we know today. So physical ailments and emotional brokenness and all the chaos of the world and even things like tornadoes and hurricanes, all of those things are a, world, a consequence of a world living under the curse of sin. That's a biblical worldview. The Bible says that the the way of salvation 
The way to be right before God doesn't come through what we do, but through what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that all those who believe on Jesus, that he died for our sins and rose again, and confess him as Lord, will be saved, having their sins forgiven and their eternity set with, with God forever. That's a biblical worldview. Where's your hope? Where's your reason for living? Where's your meaning for life? The Bible says it's in the salvation of Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus came first as a suffering servant, but he's coming again as a conquering king. And he's coming again, praise God, to fully and completely establish his kingdom where his righteousness will rule, where his saints will be gathered up to his side, and all wickedness will be judged. That's a biblical worldview looking to the future that even though today may be awful, messed up, and broken, our hope is not in the governments of this world or the, the things of this world, but in the righteousness of Jesus that is coming and will be established. Friends, believing the Bible to be true leads to delighting in the Word and desiring to know uh, it more and more because the more you understand it, the more you understand the world around us. Knowing God's Word allows you to understand the present day, the history that led up to this day, and the days that are still to come from the perspective of God and His truth. Let the truth of God be so meshed and intertwined in your heart and mind that you see the world around you through, your, through God's eyes, through his work, through his will, and through his teaching. Let your, let your worldview be transformed by the word of God. Here's another question for you. What would you do today? If you won $1.28 billion. I see some of you smiling because you know where that number comes from. There was a, uh, a lotto uh, prize last week that promised a payout of $1.28 billion. There's a lot of news coverage over that amount. And as a result, Many, including some of you, gave a lot of thought to that question. What would I do with $1.28 billion? Would you continue to go to work? Would you build a bigger house, buy a different car, give some of it away? What would you do? The allure of winning the prize was so great that despite the ridiculous odds, you're, you're more likely to get struck by lightning 15 times in a row than to win that lottery ticket. Many bought tickets, including some who don't generally buy lottery tickets. Maybe some of you. And frankly, it's easy to understand the fascination with such a high payout. The thought of, of receiving such a large sum of money is exciting, and it's exciting to all of us. I don't care who you are. We, we, we could all come up with something to spend $1.28 billion on. By the way, a person in Illinois purchased the ticket and it's estimated that after taxes uh, and all the other requirements of payment, they're, they're expected to get a payout of somewhere around four, $433.7 million. Not quite 1.28, but, but most of us could figure out what to do with $433 million too, couldn't we? Thinking about such a large sum of money uh, is an easy idea to contemplate. I remember as a kid, my favorite writing assignment, when they used to give you these writing assignments as a kid, is what would you do if you won a million dollars? 
I remember as a little kid thinking if I could just get $100, man, I'd be so rich I could buy anything I could ever desire. Most of us are very connected with money. It's a requirement. You need it for food and housing and those sort of things. And frankly, oftentimes we find some, I'm not saying this is bad, but we find some delight in money. Your boss comes to you tomorrow morning and says, hey, you've been doing a great job. We're going to give you a significant raise. Wouldn't you delight in that? Thank you. Take pleasure in that. If, if God blesses you with, with, with sufficient income to be able to do something nice or to buy something nice or to go somewhere nice or to bless somebody, is there not some level of delight in that that you are able to, to expend that resource and, and do that? that? That's not necessarily sinful, but we understand that dynamic. We often delight in riches and the things that riches can bring. But friends, the riches of this world are fading. The, the, the gold and silver of this world will one day lose their value, but the Bible says the Word of God will not return void. The psalmist says, in the, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Because we delight in money, many of us will spend the majority of our lives working and toiling. Those of you who are preparing for college and university are doing so because you have connected that with a career that you hope will produce some money for you. We all have some things we want to purchase and some nice things we want to do that are connected to money. We know about delighting in money. And what does the psalmist say? I delight, I take pleasure in the Word of God more than all the riches of the world. Delight drives our attention, our effort, our heart, and our mind. Pleasure drives what we chase after. Friends, I call you this morning to discover the truth of God's Word. Find your delight in knowing God's Word and be forever transformed by your delight in God's Word. It's not about an academic study. It's about discovering the hope of salvation through God's Word, that producing a heart of love and delight in God's Word that produces a life transformed by God's Word. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.